We've been going through the book of Genesis, um, but today I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Acts. We take a short break from Genesis for today. Uh, it will be in Acts chapter 5 today. And I want to start by asking you a question. What's the scariest thing you've ever encountered? Or, or what is the thing that you are most scared of? For me, for a long time, one thing that I am, I don't like, all right, I'm, I, and I can be scared of them is spiders, right? I, I don't like spiders. Um, you know, I, I hate walking outside and walking to, to a spider web, and we all get pretty tribal, right, when we walk into a spider web, right? Like just kind of doing our, our dance, um, uh, our tribal dance to get all the web, web off and everything. Uh, it, but more than spiders, I hate centipedes. You guys know, like the long ones. Uh, not the small ones don't bother me. Like the long ones that are big. I don't know if you've ever seen one. I've seen two, maybe three. Literally had one of those suckers fall from a ceiling right in front of me, almost on my head. I would have died, like if he would have fallen on my head. I, I don't know if, if you guys have ever watched um, Discovery Channel or anything like that. You know what I'm talking about? They're like these centipedes. They're like this long. They're big and red sometimes, I mean, they are scary things, are really, really poisonous, they're, I mean, they're freaky, all right? Uh, heights are another thing that, that kind of scare me, and, and I have a love-hate relationship with heights because I love being in high places, um, like mountains, you know, and, and towers and things like that, uh, I, I like those, but I, I have this, it's, this really is kind of a phobia, because I have this really weird fear in the back of my head that my body as I lean over the edge, it's going to involuntarily jerk itself over the edge, right? So, so as I'm looking over, my body's just going to go, Whoop! and, you know, that's it for Willis. So I don't know what to do about that. I haven't been to therapy about it or anything. But probably the scariest thing I've ever encountered, and I've told this story before, but it's always worth retelling, but it's when Mallory and I were camping with a family, or with, his, with a friend of ours and his family in Kentucky. And we, had, we were having a great weekend, and it was really nice weather, and, and I saw in the forecast for that night, following into the morning, uh, it's severe weather. I brought it up to them, but they brushed it off, so I decided to go along with it. Yeah, it probably won't be that bad. What happened that night is something I'll never forget. Mallory and I huddled up in my small two-person tent, a flood of rain all around us, puddling up under our tent, Wind blowing so hard that the trees are bending, not knowing if one of them is going to fall on us. And a constant, split second by split second, thunder and lightning just over us. And we can't see a thing. It's pitch black, but we can hear everything. And we, you see the, the trees lighting up constantly with these flashes of lightning. And so we're, we're, we're nervous, right? We're like, we, you can't go to sleep in that, in that kind of weather, right? Like maybe if you're at home, Right, you're in your bed safe, it's good sleeping weather, but not in a two-person tent. And then, the scariest moment of my entire life to this day, we're sitting there, and then we heard the two, two or three loudest booms in my life I had ever heard in my life. Louder than any gun. Lightning had struck two, three trees within 50 yards of our tent. And so those booms combined with the brightest red flash of light. We were scared, man. 
It, I mean, it could have easily been an explosion. Mal was crying. <laughs> she just started crying. I, I'm, I'm shaking. I, I, I like, I can hardly send a text message, right? I, 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 scared. For real, the closest thing to PTSD I've ever come. We didn't like July 4th for a year or two after that. So here we come to Acts. And in, that, in chapter 5, we're really close to the very beginning. And the church is still very young. I mean, maybe only a few weeks old. So, you know, you picture a, a few-week-old infant. That's how young and how fragile the, the church is right now. And this is what we learn in this chapter. To live in the new community of God is to live in the fear of God. To live in the new community of God is to live in the fear of God. What does that mean? Well, let's find out together. Let's read Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We'll read to verse 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now remember, it, remember, this is really important, this is the infant church. The church is still very new, very young, and very small. Their Bible was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have creeds. They didn't have Baptists and Presbyterians. They didn't have First uh, Church of Jerusalem and Second Church of Jerusalem. This is just the church, and it's young and it's small. No, at this point, actually, the, the leaders had basically just killed Jesus. Right? That was still a, a fresh thing at this point. And one thing that we need to ask as we begin the book of Acts, like if we're kind of reading this as a book, you know, I, I mentioned that a lot, if we're reading this as a book for the first time, one thing we need to ask ourselves is, what is going to happen to his followers? How is the church going to survive the same climate that killed their leader? How is the Lord Jesus going to protect his fledgling church from the dangers and threats that have already been imposed upon them? So we're, we're, these questions are fresh in our mind as we, as we begin the book of Acts when suddenly this thing called Pentecost happens. And, and when, when I mention Pentecost or when we hear Pentecost, we think of a triumphant victory, and it is. It is a triumphant victory, but we can't forget that as it's happening, 
Peter is preaching to thousands of Jews in this context of fear and uncertainty. If we didn't know what Pentecost was or how it was going to turn out, one thing that we'd be wondering is, oh man, how is Peter going to get out of this? Right? These, this is a similar crowd that yelled about Jesus crucify him. And now, Peter gets up in front of thousands of them and preaches about Jesus. I mean, this would be like preaching about American democracy and how great it is in the middle of Moscow. But miraculously, Peter is safe. Whoa! Peter, you can, you got away with that. You can preach Jesus to thousands of Jews and you, you're safe. Whoa! Whew. Peter's safe. Man, that was a close one. But we don't get much of a break because in the, in the very next chapter, Peter and John are going to the temple and they heal this guy and guess who finds out and arrests them but the same leaders who crucified Jesus. Okay, so if the crowd's not going to get Peter, well now the leaders have got him. The leaders have arrested them. Peter and John are in the same situation as Jesus was. Here we go again. We're on the edge of our seat. Man, are they going to do to Peter and John what they did to Jesus? Are they going to die too? Exhale again. They're released. Whoa! Twice now. Twice in front of thousands of Jews. And now in front of the leaders, they praise Jesus and they, they walk away free, unscathed. That's amazing, God. Thank you for protecting your church. Until chapter 5. And the first death to happen in the entire history of the church doesn't happen outside, but inside the church. What? That's crazy! Jesus is going to protect His disciples from like thousands of antagonistic people, but inside the church, they die? That's crazy. And so as we read this, especially, like I said, if we're reading this like for the first time, what's going on? I want to offer three solutions or three observations to that question today. And the first is, dangers within are often more serious than those without or dangers within are often more dangerous than those on the outside so what's important for what's happening here is is what happens in the uh, chapter before the first there's a few verses there at the end uh, and we read in chapter 4 verse 32 this is what what's happening now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul that's important and and luke a couple of times now, and he goes on to describe the, the unity and community that the new church enjoys. Like, they're enjoying so much community and enjoyment of each other that they're selling their possessions in order to give it to, to uh, the poor among them and the needy among them. I mean, it's this amazing unity. It's not like regular old unity, right? This isn't neighborhood watch that, that we have here every month. This is, this is spirit-forged unity. Uh, a community planned, planted, fostered, and cared for by God Himself. A, a community that the Son of God died to create. And if that's not enough, listen, 
This is the first time since Genesis 3, since the fall, that a community has lived in peace with God with no separation. First time since Adam and Eve that people are living in harmony with God. Complete and perfect harmony. And then sin comes in threatening to tear apart this mighty work of God. At the end of the day, God will always protect His church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. But that does not mean a great portion of the church cannot be torn asunder by sin. Mars Hill Church, a church of thousands, didn't die because of outside persecution. This church is in Seattle, Washington, right? One of the most liberal, progressive places in America. Very antagonistic to the gospel. They didn't die because of outside pressure or persecution. They died because of sin by leaders on the inside. Hillsong Church, some of you might know Hillsong Church. They have produced songs and albums for decades, famous for their music. But they are dying, not because of a harsh environment on the outside, but because of leniency on sin on the inside. The German church's reputation is destroyed, not because the Nazis necessarily went after the church, although Hitler was anti-Christian, but because so many church leaders just went along with it. Listen, this, this makes sense. This is why the great aim of America's staunchest enemies, like think Russia, China, North Korea, isn't all out war with the U.S., No, they're smart. They know that they need to undermine our democracy from the inside out and foment all kinds of dissent and disunity. Seems their plan is working in many ways. They know this to be true, that cancer within is far more deadly than a sword on the outside. And, th- and this is where I want us to be careful. I, want you, I just want you to hear me really carefully because I, I say these words with, with intention here. It's easier to rant against the sin out there than it is to repent of the sin in here. The sin in our hearts and the sin in our own churches. It's easier. right? I'm not saying we shouldn't critique culture. We should critique culture. God knows that there's a lot to critique. But we cannot turn a blind eye to the dangers that are lurking right here at home. That's because the critique most often leveled against us is often the most true. Hypocrisy. Isn't that the critique that the church gets the most? Hypocrisy. As painful as that is to hear, and as angry as that might make us, it is all often the most true. That's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira here. We'll look more into it. They lie to the Spirit, but we're in essence pretending to be somebody that they weren't. They're being hypocrites. That was the great sin and danger of the Pharisees. There's a degree to which we'll always be hypocrites, Right? We're, we're always going to be hypocritical. Because we, we can't live up to the, our own standards. 
Guess what, guys? Christian standards are impossibly high, and we fall short of them all the time. So that's good news, but that's different than having a hypocritical heart. Hypocrisy is quite literally deadly, as Ananias and Sapphira so wonderfully demonstrate for us here. And if we're not critiquing ourselves, if we're not actively critiquing the motives of our hearts and the sins of our hearts, then we will most certainly be hypocrites. And I would argue that hypocrisy is far more dangerous than persecution. And I know we shouldn't make light of persecution. And I'm not in Afghanistan right now. So that's easy for me to say. However, a healthy church that lives in in Integrity before the Lord is far better and far more effective than a hypocritical church in anywhere in the world. So may we be a people of self-assessment and self-repentance. Dangers from within are most often more serious than dangers without. This is the first observation. The second one is that sin undermines the message. What God, for 2,000 years now, what he has been most preeminently and zealously concerned with is the integrity and spread of his gospel. God's foremost concern for the last 2,000 years has been the protection of the gospel message and its spread. The news that he had planned for eternity past The news that His own Son has accomplished the mission. The news that His Son had died and is the only way to save people from their sins. God has a holy zeal for that message. And when we compromise that message, when we muddle it down or distort it or associate it with a sinful lifestyle, God will have none of it. He will protect his gospel from those who dare to undermine it. And this is one reason why I believe we have the Ananias and Sapphira story here. When Luke wrote Acts, right, he's writing for a number of reasons and he's answering a lot of questions. Like one question we had earlier, what's going to happen to the church? Like, how is the world going to respond to the church? Are they going to die? Are they going to survive? But another question is, how will the news about Jesus spread? How will the gospel spread? And get this, even persecution doesn't stop the gospel spread. Persecution helps the gospel spread. It's amazing. But smack dab at the beginning, we receive a dire message. Sin competes with the spread of the gospel. Either the church will allow sin to spread, or the church will have the gospel spread. This is Listen, this is exactly when you read Revelation and you see those letters to the churches. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, right at the beginning of Re- Revelation, we're, like, we're, we're ready to read all, all kinds of weird stuff about weird creatures and beasts coming out of the sea. But before we ever get to that, we read these letters to the churches. And, and the Lord Jesus sends these letters and warns them of some kind of sin in their midst. And if the sin is allowed to linger, it will grow and their life will be snuffed out. 
they don't take care of the sin, the sin will spread. We live, our culture is a sex-addicted culture. And it is so, so important that we not only teach this, but embody the sanctity of sex. Like, that it is a good and wonderful thing in the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage. This isn't just something that we should do. It's actually, like, really awesome. You guys agree? And it's awesome, okay? It's good. A few years ago, Bristol Palin, Bristol Palin, she was going around the country basically talk about that. Talking about abstinence, right? Trying to teach students to abstain from sex until marriage. But then she got pregnant out of wedlock and completely undermined her message. What's interesting is that Ananias and Sapphira's sin isn't nearly as public as pregnancy. You can't hide being pregnant, can you? I mean, you might be able to hide your belly for a little while, but sooner or later a belly's going to show, and sooner or later a baby's going to pop out of there. But lying? Sure. Lying is one of the most private of sins. I've had plenty of lies in my life that weren't found out. Sorry, Mom and Dad. We, we wouldn't even know that they had done this if it weren't for this story. But the point is to shock us that it's not necessarily the most grievous or most public sins that undermine the gospel message. It's also the most subtle that can be the most insidious. Lying, unchecked pride, hypocrisy, those don't seem like the big sins in our minds. But they are dangerous just the same. Perhaps even more so. Because they're harder to recognize. So that's, that's a second, second observation. But ultimately, what the text boils down to is our third point. And it's what, what the, um, I said it earlier kind of as the point of the message. To live in the new community of God is to live in the fear of God. Yes. This text teaches that dangers within are more serious than dangers without. Yes, this text teaches that sin undermines undermines the message. But what Ananias and Sapphira did is ultimately summed up in verse 3, and it's scary. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's tragic because in a community filled with the Holy Spirit, they were instead filled with Satan. In the community of of worship, they committed idolatry. And the truth is, and this kind of this follows from what I was just talking about, their sin isn't necessarily worse than other sins that we read about in the Bible. Like David had committed adultery and murdered the husband, had the husband murdered. Uh, Peter, right? Peter denies Christ. That's that's a heinous sin. So what this shows us is that God has the right at any time to judge us even for one sin. And this is why we're told twice in this passage, ultimately uh, summed up in verse 5 and then verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. 
This doesn't mean we're scared of God. But it does mean two things that need to be held in tension. Right? These two realities, if it is to be true fear of God, need to be held in tension with each other. The first is knowing the great dire reality of what it means to sin against this God. It means a holy apprehension to know that this sin that I commit means damnation. That it brings disrepute upon an indisputably pure and beautiful God and that it ignites His wrath like no other reality in the universe. A holy apprehension. Um, David uh, helps, helps, this, helps us understand this in Psalm 19. At the very end, he prays, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Like he knows that there's always sin lurking and there's always sin working. But, but, he prays this, and this is really important. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. He knows that there's sin in here and that he needs God's help, but he also knows he has a holy apprehension that he doesn't want to sin voluntarily and willfully. So first it means knowing the reality of sin, but the fear of God also means knowing the great, awesome reality of being shown mercy. True fear of God contains both of these elements. The reality of sin and being shown mercy. In the Gospel, God, who has every right to execute His full wrath upon you, Instead, directs that wrath onto His own Son, forgiving you for all of your past, all of your present, and all of your future sin. He has forgiven you through no effort of of your own and has declared you righteous through no effort of your own. Such mercy creates a holy aversion to sin. And a loving allegiance to God. Again, we learn from Psalms what this means. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Mercy creates a holy aversion to sin and a loving allegiance to God. God is zealous for His gospel. And in His supreme sovereignty and powerful grace, He has made sure His gospel has reached you. Through time, place, God has made sure that His gospel has reached you. He gave you His gospel and He gave you the faith to believe it. And upon believing, your record of sin was canceled because a man hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. Your record of sin was canceled and you were counted righteous. Your sinful nature was taken away 
and you were given a completely new nature. May we live in light of this reality that a great fear of God would seize us. May we have a holy apprehension toward walking carelessly and a holy aversion to sin. I want to leave you with this prayer. It's written by the Puritans and it's collected in a book called The Valley of Vision. Make it your own. It goes, Keep me ever mindful of my natural state. But let me not forget my heavenly title or the grace that can deal with every sin. Keep me ever mindful of my natural state. That's exactly what we were talking about. Keep me mindful of sin and how prone I am to sin and how insidious sin is. That's the apprehension of sin I was talking about. But, but let me not forget my heavenly title. Let me not forget the mercy that You have shown me. The grace that can deal with every sin. Let's respond to God and His Word this morning. Lord Jesus, You are the holy protector and guardian of Your church. You protect Your church from state and government, persecution, pressure. The gates of hell shall not overcome it. And we praise You for that. You are zealous for Your church, zealous for Your Gospel. And you will not allow sin to compromise the message. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make us a people of, of self-assessment and self-repentance. That we would be a people of integrity before you. That we wouldn't walk in deceit or hypocrisy as is, as is so often our temptation, so often our bent. Keep us from that, Lord Jesus. Keep us from walking in hypocrisy and deceit. Keep that far from us, though it lives so close to us. And Lord, we pray that You would give us a great fear of, of Your name. Not scared of You, not cowering in fear, but a holy fear. Where we know what it means to sin and also what it means that You have shown us mercy. And we would walk humbly and carefully and steadily in holiness. Apply Your Word to our hearts, Lord Jesus, by Your Spirit. It's in Your name that we pray.